William Shakespeare's world was shaped by the constant threat of deadly contagious diseases like smallpox, syphilis, and the dreaded bubonic plague. However, in the absence of a germ theory of disease, Shakespeare and his contemporaries turned to classical and medieval models for understanding how diseases took root in the human body and spread to others. Drawing particularly on the recent work of Gail Kern Pastor and Mary Floyd Wilson, my talk focuses on Shakespeare's representation of contagion as a force linking internal bodily health with external environmental forces, a process facilitated by the porosity of the humeral body. Following the Black Death of 1347 to 1351, which killed tens of millions of people, by some estimates over 30% of Europe's population, the bubonic plague had become endemic, leading to regular outbreaks throughout the 15th, 16th, and 17th centuries. With a mortality rate of over 50% and a fearsome set of symptoms that included fever, bleeding, and the telltale bubos, the disease fostered a general sense of fear and anxiety that registered in the works of Shakespeare and his contemporaries. Unsurprisingly, Shakespeare's references to the plague and other potentially lethal diseases were numerous. Curses like a plague upon you all and a pox on it are so common in Shakespeare's plays as to be rendered conventional. But for Shakespeare's audience, they would have likely conjured firsthand experiences of suffering, disease, and the deaths of loved ones. As Stephen Greenblatt has suggested in a recent article in The New Yorker, in Shakespeare, endemic disease is present for the most part as a steady, low-level undertone surfacing in the character's speeches most vividly in metaphorical expressions of rage or disgust. One particularly stirring example occurs when King Lear denounces his treacherous daughter Goneril as a boil, a plague sore, an embossed carbuncle in my corrupted blood. The effect of Lear's curse would have been much more pronounced in a period when many people witnessed the direct effects of the bubonic plague. More rarely, the plague plays a direct role in the plots of Shakespeare's plays. It is easy to forget that the tragedy of Shakespeare's Romeo and Juliet is precipitated not only by the passionate and self-destructive intensity of young love or the violent feud between the Capulets and the Montagues, but by a plague-related quarantine that prevents Friar Lawrence's letter explaining the circumstances of Juliet's foe death from reaching Romeo. Beyond influencing the content and linguistic textures of Shakespeare's plays, the plague also played a direct economic role in the early modern English theater. Public officials would monitor plague-related deaths and would shut down all large public gatherings, including plays, if weekly deaths exceeded 30. These plague-related closings span the entirety of Shakespeare's career, occurring between 1592 and uh, 1593, between 1603 and 1604, in 1606, and between 1608 and 1609, and often lasting a period of many months. While other large gatherings were also banned, there is evidence that the theater may have been understood as a particularly risky social space because of its morally suspect nature. The Puritan William Prynne attacked the public theater for fostering idleness, vain belief, 
and myriad forms of immorality, referring to the theater itself as that most contagious plague. Like the novel coronavirus pandemic of 2020, which has shuttered theaters around the world, outbreaks of plague were economically devastating for those who made their living in the theater. Shakespeare seems to have used these regular closures as an opportunity to write, and he likely composed many of his greatest tragedies, including Macbeth, Antony and Cleopatra, and King Lear, during periods of extended shutdown. As such closures make clear, people living in Shakespeare's time were well aware of the contagious nature of diseases like the plague, and understood that physical proximity to the sick potentially fostered transmission. However, they had a very different understanding of the physical mechanisms responsible for the spread of disease. Our modern knowledge of the roles that microbial pathogens play in many diseases would emerge gradually over the centuries following Shakespeare's life. The Dutch physician Antony van Leeuwenhoek observed bacteria and protozoa under a microscope in the late 17th century, but a more precise understanding of the role that bacteria and viruses play in causing specific diseases would not emerge until the 19th century discoveries of Robert Koch and Louis Pasteur. In the absence of a germ theory of disease, Shakespeare and his contemporaries drew upon the classical theories of Aristotle, Hippocrates, and especially the influential Roman physician Galen. The dominant theory of disease in Shakespeare's time involved the four bodily humors, black bile, phlegm, yellow bile, and blood, which in turn corresponded with the four classical elements of earth, water, fire, and air. The belief was that diseases, as well as personality traits, were caused by the predominance of one or more of the humors. Melancholy, for example, was believed to be the result of an excess of black bile. Good health thus involved maintaining a proper humoral balance, and disease was caused by imbalance, thus leading to medical treatments such as induced vomiting and bloodletting. In the 17th century, the notion of oikonomia, or in its English iterations, the economy of nature, or the animal economy, was used to convey the ideal of balance as the cornerstone of good health. Disease was caused when the internal oikonomia of the body was perverted. These ideas, in turn, facilitated a more modern understanding of the body as a series of systems, the nervous system, the circulatory system, and so on, that must be orchestrated into a harmonious whole. The humoral understanding of human health and personality featured prominently on the early modern stage, spawning an entire subgenre of dramatic comedy known as comedy of the humors, in which personalities of major characters were defined by their predominant humoral disposition. Ben Jonson's popular comedies, Every Man in His Humor and Every Man Out of His Humor, are perhaps the most famous examples, uh, but aspects can be found in Shakespeare's Falstaff plays as well, Henry IV, Parts 1 and 2, and Merry Wives of Windsor, particularly in characters like Pistol and Nim, as well as Falstaff himself. One potential problem with the humoral theory of sickness was how to account for the obviously contagious nature of many diseases. 
If human health is the result of internal balance of individual bodies, how did diseases like the plague and smallpox spread readily across populations? The solution to this dilemma lies in the porosity of the humeral body, which was understood to be influenced not only by food and drink, but also by weather, climate, and other environmental factors. In her work on the embodied nature of early modern emotion, Gail Kern-Pastor refers to this dynamic as the pre-modern ecology of the passions and focuses on the fluid interplay between internal bodies, the humors, and exterior environments, the corresponding elements. In terms of understanding contagious disease, the humeral body's susceptibility to the influence of external factors rendered it vulnerable to dangerous forms of contagion. It was commonly believed, for example, that diseases were spread by inhaling foul odors, like the stench of feces or a rotting corpse. While all bodies were understood as potentially susceptible to outside contagion, certain people were believed to be more disposed to contagion than others. Mary Floyd Wilson refers to such individualized susceptibility as sympathetic contagion, an idea rooted in the notion that, and I quote, the victim possessed a predestined affinity with the invasive element. Wilson foregrounds the broad implications of this dynamic understanding of contagion, and I quote again, the effects of sympathetic contagion produced fundam fundamental questions about causation and agency. Were such responses moral, natural, demonic, or providential. Contagion's discursive multiplicity in the early modern imagination is further explored in the recent book Contagion and the Shakespearean Stage, co-edited by Daryl Chalk and Mary Floyd Wilson, and fortuitously published just months before the emergence of the novel coronavirus pandemic, which would turn global attention toward issues of contagion and disease. Drawing upon such recent work, I will now trace a brief and provisional sketch of how Shakespeare represents contagion in his plays, with particular attention to how contagion blurs the boundaries between bodies and environments, resulting in a dynamic interplay between inner and outer worlds. Producing a discursive blending of health, morality, and environmental factors like weather and time of day, Shakespeare frequently depicts contagion through the personification of landscapes coupled with the environmentalization of human bodies. Shakespeare's plays often associate contagion with darkness, night, and cloudy weather. A good example of this occurs in Julius Caesar when, worrying about her husband's bodily and mental health, as well as his intentions, Brutus's wife Portia confronts her husband. Is Brutus sick? And is it physical to walk unbraced and suck up the humors of the dank morning? What is Brutus sick and will steal out of his wholesome bed to dare the vile contagion of the night and tempt the roomy and unpurged air to add unto his sickness? No, my Brutus, you have some sick offense within your mind. In addition to associating certain times of day, the dank morning and the night, with the threat of contagious disease, this passage also displays the environmental dynamics of the humors. There is an interplay between the roomy and unpurged air 
and the effects that this air will likely have on Brutus's body. The passage's final turn from concern with physical illness, both environmental and bodily, to the sick offense within Brutus's mind, illustrates the close proximity of moral and physical concerns in Shakespeare's plays. As Gail Kern Pastor points out, such associations are not merely metaphorical, but physical, pointing to material chains of causation linking human health and personality to the natural world. Shakespeare's association of the night with contagion is reiterated in a number of other plays as well, such as King John, where Shakespeare writes of the night's black contagious breath, and Henry VI Part II, where he describes foul contagious darkness in the air. In Shakespeare's imagination, the night is not simply the absence of sunlight, but a palpable material presence. In a very famous passage from Macbeth, for example, when Lady Macbeth seeks humeral change within her body in order to make her feminine disposition more favorable to murder, she conjures, come, thick night, suggesting that the night itself embodies physical substance capable of altering the physiological and psychological makeup of her body. Thus, Lady Macbeth's wish that the spirits come to my women's breasts and take my milk for gall. Shakespeare also frequently associates contagion with fog and clouds, which he understood as vehicles for pestilence and disease. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, for example, the fairy queen Titania catalogs the apocalyptic consequences of her recent conflict with Oberon, the fairy king. Therefore, the winds, piping to us in vain as in revenge, have sucked up from the sea contagious fogs, which falling in the land have every pelting river made so proud that they have overborne their continents. The ox, therefore, stretched his yoke in vain, the plowman lost his sweat, and the green corn hath rotted ere his youth attained a beard. The fold stands empty in the drowned field, and crows are fatted with the Murian flock. In this passage, the injurious effects of contagion occur not in the human body, but in the natural environment. Fertility deities tasked with blessing the marriage bed of Theseus and Hippolyta to ensure healthy offspring, as well as promoting agricultural fecundity, Titania and Oberon have set into motion a chain of natural disasters resulting in mass agricultural destruction. Winds raise fog from the sea, which causes excessive rain, which in turn leads to mass flooding that destroys both crops and livestock. The fear of contagion evoked in this passage is not that of human disease, but famine caused by inclement weather. The fear is most viscerally registered in the final image of crows feeding on the Murian flock. The archaic adjective Murian signals dead animals that have been killed by disease, particularly contagious diseases like the plague. Shakespeare thus collapses the twin fears of plague and famine in a single image. Indeed, agricultural failures were common in Shakespeare's time, and the specter of famine would have been as frightening to Shakespeare's audience as that of disease. Eco-critics and environmental historians have recently called attention to the fact that the so-called Little Ice Age, spanning from the 16th century to the 19th century, may have contributed to the crop failures of Shakespeare's time, and in turn promoted in Shakespeare and his contemporaries a broad sense of anxiety about inclement meteorological forces like excessive rain and fog. 
The final example of contagion that I want to explore occurs in a very famous passage toward the beginning of Henry IV, Part I, where Prince Hal, alone on stage, reveals to the audience his true intentions regarding Falstaff and his other dissolute companions. I know you all, and will a while uphold the unyoked humor of your idleness. Yet herein will I imitate the sun, who doth permit the base contagious clouds to smother up his beauty from the world, that when he please again to be himself, being wanted, he may be more wondered at by breaking through the foul and ugliness of vapors that did seem to strangle him. In this passage, Hal uses the meteorological drama of sunlight breaking through a thick, thick bank of fog in order to convey his eventual emergence as a fit prince of the realm, a process that will take place gradually over the course of two plays. This passage contains the rather unsavory implication that Hal is simply using his friends, but I would argue that his depiction of the clouds as contagious betrays a hint of anxiety since it suggests the possibility that in dallying with Falstaff and the others, the prince might become infected in both body and mind. In addition to the very real possibility that the prince might contract a physical disease, syphilis perhaps, while in the company of Falstaff, since their preferred activities include late-night drinking and hanging around in brothels, there is also the implication that character itself, the unyoked humor of their idleness, might too be contagious. Indeed, as we have seen, the early modern humoral understanding of the body held that personality was largely determined by the body's humoral makeup, and this makeup could be altered by personal and environmental influences. The ugly mists of vapors might be more influential and more difficult to break through than Hal initially suggests. As these brief examples show, Shakespeare's understanding of contagion is rooted in a dynamic, humoral interarticulation of inner and outer worlds, and his representations imply that environment plays a central role in influencing character, mor morality, and disease. <laughs>